in most sports, field and court, you know, basketball is actually the goal. If we can get our guys to, to move like basketball players, they're going to be really good at football because that speed, when I was down at Tony's, I was blessed enough to be able to hang out with Anquan Bolden a little bit and hear him say, that's what we're doing out there. I'm going to play basketball. You play football, I'm going to play basketball, and I'm going to torch you. That was Mark Hoover, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Thanks for being here. I'm excited to get you guys this show with Mark. He is the Director of Athletic Performance at Metrolina Christian Academy in Indian Trail, North Carolina. He also works for Simply Faster in a coaching and technical consulting role. Mark has many decades of coaching under his belt. And he has spent them not only as a strength coach or sports performance coach, but also in the role of a football coach. Uh, Mark spent 11 years as a head football coach. And so he has a perspective on many different sides of that total athletic equation. On the podcast today, Mark will be talking about his own background as an athlete and his evolution into the role of game speed and specific agility training in athletic development. Mark will be getting into pieces like rehearsed versus more problem-solving agility movements, the role of basketball and pace in overall movement development, and then we'll also finish the show by talking a little bit on the strength side of things, and Mark will be chatting about the role of the 1x20 strength system in the totality of his program and the developmental process for his athletes. Whether you work with high school, college, youth, pro, there's something in the show for everybody, and it was really fun sitting down with Mark to chat. Before we get started, I wanted to remind you, if you haven't seen yet, my new online course, Sprint Acceleration Essentials, is out. It's something I'm really proud of, and it speaks to the fundamentals of rotation, torque production, usage of the hips and acceleration, and so much more. There's also great bonus content from Austin Yoakum and Jamie Smith, and to check that course out, you can head to justflysports.com. All right, that being said, let's get to episode 364 with Coach Mark Hoover. Mark, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here, man. Joel, I'm so happy to be on your podcast. I, I, I'm humbled. And it was funny. I, when you sent a message and asked me beyond, I just put a very random gif on Twitter of uh, the guy from the program, like looking at the list and being like, seat at the table. And I just <laughs> put it out there and I didn't say any perspective about it. And everyone was like, what just happened? What just happened? I said, oh, it's just something that, uh, Probably isn't that big of a deal to some people, but because of my history with deep diving into your show and just the rabbit holes that sent me down and the people I've reached out to and met and talked to because of it, it was just really, really awesome thing. So I'm very humbled that you asked me and I'm really super glad to be here. Yeah, well, I'm glad to have you. I'm really excited to gain your perspective on so many topics. Like with all the guests that have been on the show, it, it runs through my perspective and the populations I work with both in person and online. And where you are working with the high school population, you're in that group and you're using these topics specifically with your population on a daily basis. I'm really interested in how you are putting it to use and, and your evolution as a coach. And so to get started, can you tell me a little bit about, I believe your background is in powerlifting, but you've also uh, been a sport coach. And so you have that experience. And so I'm curious what your journey is on in terms of your own uh, background. So what what were you what were you really good at that led you into the the strength and conditioning element? And then how have you changed from your initial steps into the industry? I know you've been in it for a while too, so I'm sure there's quite a bit of <laughs> journeying that you've gone along. But so whatever you want to share with that. So 
I guess powerlifting, not as a competitive powerlifter, but I was always blessed with weight room abilities. And I was that guy that I'm not, I used to not want to tell people this, but I went to a small college. And when I walked on campus, I looked like a physical specimen. And as far as the lineman goes, and everybody was like, oh, this guy, this guy, this guy. And then, you know, we go in the weight room and I'm lifting all this weight. And then, as it turns out, the only time I was a star on the football field was when we were in that weight room. <laughs> so, yeah, I could do all these crazy things. And then people would be like, man, you're the biggest guy on the whole team and you're standing on the sideline. I'm like, yeah, I have no skill. You know, like, <laughs> like I'm a, my skill is moving a barbell. So that was kind of my background. And when I got into coaching at the high school level, in the early to mid nineties, that was the qualification needed to be the strength conditioning person, which wasn't even, they didn't even call it strength conditioning person. That's kind of a, a little tribute to a buddy of mine named Brandon Herring. Cause he, he jokes around about him being called the, the, the weight room guy. That's kind of what people called you. You're, you're a weight room guy. So I get my first high school assistant coaching job and the head coach looks at me and says, you're going to run our weightlifting program. Okay. So I kind of rolled along that path for many, many years. And then, you know, just being going high school to high school, you know, through my coaching career, again, just being the guy that lifts weights. So you get to, you know, and I was your prototypical meathead. Let's squat as heavy as we can, because clearly that's going to make us better at football. Let's bench as much as we can because clearly that is going to be, you know, and ironically, when we had good athletes, we won football games. And when we didn't have good athletes, we weren't so good at, 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 during my journey. So about, oh, I guess it's 10, 12, 13 years ago now, I was at a high school, a big high school in Salem, North Carolina. And the head coach there, still a good friend of mine, said, hey, you're really good at uh at the weight room stuff, he said, but I really want you to make this kind of your thing. Like, I want you to become our strength conditioning coach. And I was like, okay, you know, and by then that's a thing. He said, uh, you know, Ethan Reeve, who is amazing, but he, uh, his son played in our JV football team. He said, listen, Ethan's son plays on our JV football team. He said, you can go over there. So, you know, I'm like, okay, I'll go over and talk to this guy. But, you know, I can make kids strong. So clearly I know what I'm doing. I tell people, all the time. The last day that I was certain about anything in this space was the day that I walked into Ethan's weight room. You can't say office because Ethan didn't he didn't believe in an office. He had his desk out in the weight room. When I walked in there and just started having a conversation with him and watching the things he was doing, like they're tumbling. Like, what are they doing? Like they're tumbling. That doesn't make any sense. You know. And then watching his guys lift and run, you're like, they're pretty strong and they move really well. So you start asking questions. That started kind of a relationship that goes to this day. I don't talk to him or see him as much used to, but he let me come over there. The school let me go over like every week or every two weeks. And I got to go to pro day and hang out. I just got to basically do kind of an informal internship with him over a couple of years where I just, when I had questions, I ran it by him and I just, it just sent me down this, this rabbit hole of, I've probably not been doing it the way that I need to do it for 
a field sport. And then that kind of just led me to, to just start asking questions and, and luckily having a growth mindset, it's, it just kind of carried from there. And then in 2013 or 14, when I was at Piedmont high school right here near where I live now, I was, I was asked to work with some other sports and that kind of was another watershed moment where it got me out of the football space a little bit and realizing that some of the commonalities and some of the things that weren't. And, and then of course, after I talked with Ethan, I started to pursue certifications and further my education and, and things like that and pursue a master's degree. And, you know, there's all these educational things, but by 2000 and a year after that, I had, I went to the principal there and I said, look, I, I can't coach football anymore. I would rather be with all the, you know, I could impact so many more athletes by not coaching football. And so I got out of it and I believe that I was the first public school strength conditioning coach in North Carolina. At least I was told I was that that's all I did. Now I didn't get paid. I just, we invented a position and it, it didn't have any more money, but I got to work with all the athletes and, and then, you know, that just kind of, again, started sending me down different rabbit holes. And, and pretty soon a, another job opened up where I was the director of strength conditioning for an entire, the whole school district, which it was just one high school and a middle school intermediate. But, and then that kind of led me to where, I, where I'm at now. But so I started way back when as your very typical meathead ex football player, just grind, 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 lift heavy and everything's going to be okay. And, uh, and kind of to where I'm at now, but that's, that's kind of the, the long short of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting your story of being a lineman, being really strong, but not having the game skill. It reminds me a little bit of when Austin Yoakum was on the first time, I think he had told that story of when he at least had gotten first gotten to college, he was very strong. He was stronger than the other linemen, I believe. But then he was talking about getting laid out by them because you know, they knew the game better. <laughs> And then he had to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had, and he had to work hard to understand the game throughout his four years, and eventually achieved a lot of success and on the field. And you know, I was going to ask you if you could go back in time to your former self, lineman self, who was super strong, you know, physically capable, didn't have the skill. I'm curious too, like even before looking at what you did leading up to that, what your youth childhood development was, and all those things. Because, and I like to dig into this because I think it's very easy to say okay, well, we are strong and then we get a game speed. Well, what is game speed? And what's the precedence of game speed? I just think we don't, sometimes we don't have those conversations enough. And again, sometimes it's not things we can like, okay, I'm working with an 18-year-old and they didn't play enough sports when they were young. So, there's like so much I could do. Like Jeremy Frisch talks about, you do need to have those interventions as young as you can with the exposure to sport. But uh, yeah, just curious, your former self, you know, walking in, what would you change? Like, how would you go about your, even if you could be your own coach leading up to that and, and how you, you, you brought yourself up through the skill development chain? Any thoughts there with how you would change that? Uh, if I could go back, I would convince my younger self to play every sport possible. Now, I grew up in the 80s. Soccer wasn't even a you know, a sport that anyone, I mean, there was no school soccer in Western Pennsylvania. The football coach AD was not going to allow that. So I would play soccer, even though I don't particularly like that sport. I think that would be a fabulous sport to offset some of the things that I was doing. 
I would spend less time just benching and squatting and deadlifting and eating and more time figuring out how to move. And I think by the time I still never figured it out, and I didn't have anybody in college that really guided that either. We didn't have a strength coach per se where I was. So movement would have been something that if I could do that all over again, I'd spend a lot more time playing every sport I could as a younger athlete, particularly, and just trying to offset some of that boxy like movement that I have. Like I have short steps and, you know, I just, it just never was. And, and, you know, and if there was, boy, if I knew uh, just a little bit about what I know now when I was 14 or 15, or I had somebody that could have guided me in this direction, it probably would have made a world of difference. So I would still lift and I would still have, have been a big, strong guy, but I probably would have done more things out of my comfort zone. And I think that's kind of what happens is I was very comfortable in a gym, very comfortable under a bar. So the thought of doing much else, eh, you know, and that's what I would, that's what I would change. Yeah. I think part of it too, the, along with the playing other sports and the movement is it's, it's almost like, I, I guess I think of like the Bruce Lee, it's not necessarily, it, it is, there's things you can add, but it's also what you can take away. And that being a fundamental principle. And I think about from my own perspective, like I, I ended up in track because my basketball ability was not great. And part of it is, yes, I, I should have started playing basketball earlier if that's what I wanted to do later on, but that's not what was meant for me. So that's fine. And then playing more sports than I did early on. But I also think is I formed an identity around trying to be more athletic, like trying to jump higher, trying to run faster, trying to be as strong as I could. And when I had that identity, against the competition, then I, I was okay. Like I wasn't amazing, but I could play decently well for the level of competition I had. But as soon as that identity was broken because the other team was as athletic as me or more, mm -hmm. I, I couldn't do anything. And on top of that, it also prevented me from taking the necessary steps to have to be confident in other and grow in other portions of my game. Like playing against just even different people than the same old people I would typically play with. Like being like wanting to explore the corners of my game. I didn't have it because I spent so much time trying to be something else. And mm -hmm. I think about that even in the microcosm of the gym when we do have athletes in, right? Like what, and I, I think it might've been Austin who said it, and maybe it's what we praise athletes for, right? Do we praise them the most for lifting a weight they've never lifted? Or is there other things that we can praise them for? And especially too, like you mentioned, even working with different sports too, like the difference between football and tennis, for example, or something is like so massive. Like, Anyways, so just yeah, I'm I'm um I guess I'm more, saying that praise that praising what we praise them for is something that slips through the cracks. But I heard that on that podcast too, and I've had conversations with people. That's part of what drives still to this day that one rep max is important culture that exists really heavily in high school sports today, is that because that's what's up on the board. Hmm. We got seven guys. You know, I had a coach tell me one time years and years ago, when I have 12 or more guys that can bench 300 pounds, we win more football games. And I was like, yikes, even back then, like, I'm not sure the correlation there, but, but you know, what we praise them for is what they're going to focus on. So that's why we try to, I don't have any problem with the record boards, but just be careful about what you put up there. Put the things up there that are really going to matter. Because I don't know that that one rep max bench press really matters that much. You know, 
I had somebody tell me once that they went to Liberty way back in the day. Coach Gillespie was there. And they looked at his record board, and it had massive deadlift numbers mm-hmm. and massive bench numbers. And then their squat was, it just didn't seem to match up. And he asked them about it. And he said, well, that's because that's their max at 0.5 meters per second. Mm. And that was probably like, I don't know how many years ago. So he must have been using a Tendo back mm. in the, but that makes a lot of sense. They're, you know, instead of chasing that, that slow grinding squat, they were chasing a little bit, you know, and I think that that's a very important thing that he said is make sure that you're praising them the most for what's going to really matter on the field. Yeah. Let's segue that into a little bit more of the game speed type stuff. Cause I think yeah. that if you, know, you had mentioned move, movement, you mentioned um, even yourself, you said you took like very slow, short steps. And it reminds me of something that Tony Villani, I know has influenced your work a lot, has said fast feet don't eat. And it does even that, I think too, with the short, quick steps, like in addition to the, the skill there's almost like, there's almost like, um, like you have to have a level of certainty in your abilities and safety and guts in the environment to take the bigger leap. If that, even if you look at each step, you know, it's taking a leap because you're confident in your decision-making, your perception and your body being able to take you there. Whereas short is safe, you know, it's like, all right, I'm in my, my shell a little bit. So anyways, um, curious on just getting into it first, your, your perspective on game speed, movement, what you've taken from others and how that lands in your program. So a watershed moment for me was definitely when I met Tony Villani. And then another one was when I heard Nick DeMarco on your podcast and I started to deep dive. And then, you know, Elon's not too far from me. So I've been able to visit and you realize that what Tony says about separation and how you can set yourself up to be faster as far as on the field, even when you're not running as fast is really something that I've never really considered before. So Tony's kind of idea, and I know there's probably been people that have had similar ideas. It's just this Tony just happened to be the one that has influenced me. But the teaching of the foot positions and the joint angle and the feel of what your inside and outside edge means and how to push hard and where your feet should be, all these little things that I've learned from him and following his program and others too. But it kind of, what it did for me was I was always really detail-oriented in the weight room. You know, I would pain over sets and reps and volume and, you know, the I'm a Coach Parker, the system. I'd be sitting there trying to figure out how to split it up so we got the appropriate volume for the week. And then, you know, we'd kind of go outside and run back and forth and say, hey, we're working agility, you know, and you'd kind of do a little bit. His, him and Tony Holler and some of the other linear speed people too as well really opened my eyes to you need to be probably even more detail-oriented in those movement skills in order to really transfer that strength from the weight room. So I think that, you know, when I said I took short steps, it was, you know, it's just lack of training and lack of, you know, even when I was running, you know, you get the kid, just like you said, you get them comfortable in these things. And all of a sudden, like, I, I think that when people talk about mental toughness i think that's very task specific they're going to fail in situations that they've never experienced success in so using tony's program and then combining that with nick's nick demarco's reactive agility stuff into one essentially doing is it as two separate things and then seeing how they just naturally merge together 
I think allows athletes to be faster just because they have experience in the best ways to move. And it takes time and it takes effort. But I think that at this point, I spend way less time worrying about what we do in the weight room and way more time worrying about how we're going to take what we do in the weight room and turn that into movement skill that will actually impact the game. You know, I tell I tell our kids all the time, if those one rep maxes meant anything, I could start for our football team or most football teams at age 52. I could still be a pretty decent high school football player, right? But in reality, if I stepped one foot on that field, I would get crushed, run over, even though I'm physically stronger, because I don't have the movement skill or the ability to turn on that neural highway that makes me react extremely fast. So those are the, I think those are the things that have become the most important part of our program to this point. Yeah. I'd like to dig into the the interplay between those two things. I had a podcast a long, long time ago. I want to say it was Jay DeMeo, Jeff Moyer, and Michael Zuifel back in the back mm. back in the day. Yeah, <laughs> it was kind of that, that uh, yeah, it was yeah. old old school. Just basically kind of debating like pure reactive agility, where there's no, you're, I'm not coaching your steps. It's literally decision. Here's the space. Here's the decision I want you to make, and you self organize the outcome. And then on the other end, it's I guess maybe more grounded in some of the Michael Yeses type concepts of okay, there is some things that you should be able to do within a change of direction. And I do think with all things, there's the answer is going to be somewhere in the middle, you know, maybe more one side or the other, depending on the athlete too. I think kids who grow up playing a lot of sports, this is be my, I would imagine this would be the case is that they don't need as much of the specific coaching. Whereas there might be other kids who maybe didn't, maybe they had less of that background or in particular sports or particular change of direction sports. And Maybe there's some gaps they need to fill in. Maybe there's something mental they have with being able to make a hard cut some way or another. My own bias tends me to cater me towards giving people the benefit of the doubt that they can move, self-organize the task. But then I feel like it is good to have that reference point. I, I guess it's to me, it's kind of similar to like learning the piano. Like I like messing around. I like trying to replicate songs to take the time to go through the major and minor scales and, and actually practice scales. It's like, oh God, this is so much more boring, but I know I need to do it. You know, like, so my mind does bias towards, well, why can't we just all do only decision-making? All that to say, I'm curious where you, uh, I guess, where you land with that. Obviously, you do both. So you can see, okay, we did these basic footwork patterns. Then we went to movement, dynamic movement, dynamic decision-making. Just curious, the interplays, correlations, and what you see in terms of just, and you could take this any way you want, but just what you're seeing in terms of doing more canned basic you could call them fundamentals sometimes i don't know what that means talking to rob gray then and then the dynamic the the actual dynamic outputs so i kind of swung all the way to the reactive side when i first heard nick talking and i started to look into that stuff and so we were doing all kinds of stuff everything you know that he was throwing out there and you know it's really as creative as your mind can be everything Mm -hmm. variable and and then what you find is and what why Tony's stuff really opened my eyes was the kids really don't know how at the kids that we deal with, they really don't understand push hard. They don't understand how, you know, and you can, you can self-organize movement and the, the movement might be fabulous, but they might not be able to put the force into the ground that, that they need to, because they don't really understand 
what that you want them to do that. And they don't understand how much ground you can cover, how much of a difference if you are really on the right edge of the foot, if you can get there, or if you end up on the wrong edge and you have to adjust, like it can happen in a teaching kind of those piano, you know, the boring piano stuff can now help them understand the hows and the whys. Then when you go back to your variable movement and your your reactive agility stuff, they start to put it into action. So when that happened, when I started to, you know, I, I had no idea who Tony was. And a buddy of mine that works for Shredman now, Josh McClure, was like, man, you got to meet this guy. So I went and heard him speak. And within about five minutes, I said, okay, this is something that we're going to combine with our reactive stuff. So I think what we do now is we have the very basic levels of Tony's things and the very basic levels of our reactive agility things and the very basic levels of our variable movement. So we, our whole warm-up basically is just variable movement. Like we don't do a whole lot of A skips or things. We do a lot of where we partner up and one person stands a foot behind the other one arms length behind and the person in front has to hop, hop, squat, but it has to be a variable squat on two legs and one leg and they have to repeat and you know, they're, so when you start to combine these three things and you think, okay, there's A, there's B and there's C and they're all separate things. And then as you start to progress this to where you're teaching just little, you know, little movements and stop, a little movement and stop, little movement and stop. And then you're using a reactive agility game where it's just one-on-one and, and it's a score game with two spots they could run into. They have to run, guy steps up, you have to run through the one he doesn't step into. And then as you start to progress along where the things get a little less general and a little more specific and a little less less condensed. So now we hey, let's throw in multiple guys and we're doing all these different ways you can go in and out of the of the spaces and you're reacting to multiple people. All of a sudden you see all three of those A, B, and C, it's really just one A, one B, one C. They all merge into one. And that's when I step back and I said, okay, I need to I need to create progressions from all of these things from what I'm seeing and kind of then tie them in together so that there's direct transfer from 1A to 1B to 1C. And as we move towards closer and closer towards the performance season, we get more and more specific to the game situations they're gonna they're gonna see. And it's really mind-boggling because Something happened the other day that you know that they're starting to get it when you're talking. Like, so we're doing uh it's a closed drill, but they're having to explode off, trying to get up to that that speed where they can change directions most effectively. As soon as they get past the cone, he has to make a 135-degree cut and finish back through and then hit a D-cell. My guy takes off to the cone goes to make his 135-degree cut and has to get the fast feet. So we call that fast feet replaced, as Tony calls it. So you see him go pop, pop, pop <clears throat> as he's coming back to 135, and he says, way too fast. But he finishes the drill. As he's sprinting through the end of the drill and hitting his D-cell, he says, way too fast. And I went crazy. And everybody was like, he just did a bad, and I said, it doesn't matter that he did a that he messed the drill up. When you start to understand why your feet didn't work that way in a drill like that, that's when 
some good things are going to happen. So without Tony's kind of starting up, and a lot of his stuff is open. Like there's, there is some cone stuff, but it's mostly the piano. Like you just said, practicing, you know, we're going to practice the eight vector cut. So we're going to practice our, how, how we wide brace cross over to 90, how we, how we cross over to 135, how we come back to 180, how do we push through 45? There's, you just build on that and then you, you build in these reactive games and then you start to see they begin to understand. Okay. Then he took that, what he learned right there about that 135, he's going to take into that reactive game when he has to do that. And then he's got a defender that's going to, that's going to make a cut and he's got to make a 135 to, to separate from him. He's going to remember all those little things that he did. Then you put him out there in a wide open, you know, like as we get further and further into the off season and into the summer, and we're a little bit behind at MCA because I just came in February. But as we get into the off season and in the summer, we start to open up the field and put more defenders out there and more, you know, so you start to expand the constraints. Then you're going to really start to see how they all kind of work together and in a completely reactive situation. And when you go back to talking about what Austin said about Austin Yokum said about praising the right things, man, I make sure that I praise when they make the right cut and they're going at the right speed and they start to learn because those three things together really help movement, like like exponentially help movement. They know I'm going to take what I do in the weight room, you know, and we can debate bilateral. You know, we do a lot of single leg stuff. And I coach what edge of the foot I want them on, on a, you know, on an isometric and things like that. So then they can take that out there. And I praise when I see them hit the right edge. I try to praise that, you know, so I think, you know, I get so long winded, Joel, that I don't even remember where we started this question. But I, th- I think those three things just merge together to become one progression and regression for us. And we will regress back and just we'll have them move their feet. All right. Have them pop into into a position and say 135 wide base crossover. And they'll, you know, and it's just and and so it's just a progression or aggression that I think is something that is probably and I know this is probably blasphemy, but I would say probably vastly more important things to master than squat, bench, deadlift. Yeah. As far as what progresses, because I would rather have a guy that's okay strength-wise but can change direction in an efficient, understands how to push, understands how big a step it takes to to really hit a nice wide base crossover. That guy's going to win on the field 100% of the time, almost. You know, so that's kind of where we're at on that. I wanted to take a quick minute to tell you about my story with our sponsor, Lost Empire Herbs. Several years ago, I had strongman and mental training expert Logan Christopher on the show, and In the interview, I realized that Logan, in addition to deadlifting over 500 pounds and ripping phone books in half, also was the founder of an herbalism company. Long story short, I ended up ordering the Phoenix Formula, one of their flagship products. And in taking that, I noticed increased energy and a decreased reliance on coffee, which honestly, I was kind of expecting that. But what I didn't expect is after a few weeks, I noticed my weight room numbers had increased substantially. And the Phoenix formula also led me to getting shiliagit resin, which is found in the Phoenix formula and recommended by a lot of strength coaches, as well as other Lost Empire Herbs products. 
I've been using Lost Empire Herbs ever since, and I have sponsors of the show that I believe in, that I use, and that I want to share with you. So if you want to check them out, head to lostempireherbs.com slash just fly for 15% off my favorite Lost Empire Herbs products. You get a 365-day money-back guarantee. I really enjoy having Lost Empire Herbs as a sponsor of this show, and I hope you get a chance to check out what they have to offer. Let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, and I think it does go back to, to yeah, what are you praising? And I, I mean, that's definitely where I've gone to is less. There's so many things to work on to be a great athlete. And mm-hmm. strength is nice. But if you are a person who finds your confidence in strength and you are a team sport athlete, then you're ultimately not. There's other things that you need to be finding your confidence in that will help you to be better. I know Paul Cady, who's been on this podcast, has said the difference between major and minor league baseball players is the minor league players seem to actually be more concerned about their one at maxes than the majors, which makes perfect sense because the major league players, and I've seen this too, the most skilled athletes I worked with, like at Cal, for example, were the ones who almost kind of, I mean, they lifted and they did a good job and they were disciplined, but you could tell they really didn't like to kind of put that last 5% or 10% on the bar. They never cared to do that. Like, and it was, it was very obvious. And you know, I was going to say too, you know, I, I think we, we've kind of been through a lot of information. Uh, so I don't want to, you know, I don't, I don't want to, to rabbit trail away from the original conversation. But, you know, with what you were saying, and this is some, a way that I've started to think about some of these concepts where you could debate this on either side in the sense of, like, for example, and oh, this is where I was going uh, with my take on what you're doing with linear speed. But I'll say this first is, it's, I don't think it's an and, it's, I don't think it's a either or. I don't think it's, oh, well, you have to do only, you have to do only canned agility or reactive. You can do it both, but I think the fact that you can do them both will help you to understand what the former is doing. It's like linear speed is where I was going to go. I think linear speed mm-hmm. is much, much easier to see that relationship than multidirectional sport agility because there's just less going on. And it was in my time with the Darien Bar where I finally found a drill set where I'm like, oh, I actually feel this, this thing that we're doing now, I feel this when we're doing full speed, like a more squatted version of running, for example. I feel the hips and glutes working the way I know they work in full speed. And so that's the way I could link the two. And I'm like, yes, I know, I can see and feel the link between these. And I think that, like you were saying, like doing like 135 degree cut and you have to know what speed you're going to be at. And if you're starting with, well, you mentioned you start with reactive. I think you're saying you start with mirroring drills, but then it sounds like the progression goes, then you go to like the more of the canned rehearse things and then play, right? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, yeah, like, so yeah. Okay, sorry, if you have anything there. I, I was going to say, no, we, we, we do score, dodge, chase drills, kind of a tag type thing. And then we just kind of change up the constraints, giving them multiple ins and outs, multiple directions they can go. You know, you start off with, they can only go one direction and those type of things. But I, I agree with you that it, it needs to be somewhere in the middle. And, but the, you know, I'd say we probably do more closed things just like you would, you know, if you're teaching any subject, you're going to start with the basics. You know, you're not going to jump to calculus. You're going to teach them addition and subtraction, then multiplication and, and division. You know, so I, I look at it like we're going to start with the very, very basics. So you're going to have a little more closed things and then and you're gonna have a lot of one-step things where they're just kind of popping their feet and then hitting the ground and then taking a cut you know and then by the time you get to summer and for high school football particularly in summer and in the preseason they're getting a lot of those things on the practice field in a wide open 
full field situation. So it's just you progress into that wide open, full field reactive situation. Got it. Okay. So you're, cause my, well, my thought was, <laughs> I'll have to revisit your, your ordering there. I'm sorry. I, I must've got confused a little bit because my, my thought was more so if people wanted to see, okay, how much is more, this more closed work impacting the full game speed stuff, finding a progression in a way that, uh, and in a way that you can see and feel that I feel like would be the way to go in the sense that like, and, and it's hard, right? Like you'd have to change the constraints of your reaction drills to fit like whatever angle change, you know, you'd have to kind of constrain your space so that the type of cut you're wanting to get happens more often somehow. And then you'd have to rehearse that before that to me would be the only way to really see if they're at, you could go to later to the athlete and say, Hey, did you actually feel that drill showing up when you did that? Do you feel that? And to me, that would be the litmus test of these things. I think it is interesting because I did mention the piano thing as well, too. And I feel like sometimes like with good athletes, I feel like they're already doing calculus the whole time. You know what I'm saying? Like a good athlete who grew up playing sports and has good skill, in some ways, they're already doing calculus, you know? And so I'm like, so I'm always just trying to think, well, what can I do to, or the athletes who aren't, you know, how can we progress them in a way that they can feel it and definitively know, or I can definitively see that this change of direction drill is in fact linking in a way they can feel and makes an actionable difference. So I, I'm curious, you know, if, <laughs> if your thought, like, how would you, how would that look? Like if you were going to do that, I, cause I'm, I get, I'm not actually that knowledgeable on some of the nuts and bolts of the more, you could say the the base, like the base changes the direction. Here's a basic cut. Here's how many steps. Here's the speed. I am curious how that could look though, if you fuse the two together or if you've seen anything like that, or if you have athletes who are are doing a, a typical, like you said, Nick DeMarco style drill. And they're like, oh, coach, I felt that cut yes. we did before. You know what I'm saying? And and here's how I felt it. So I, I'm curious more linking, more into the linking between these things. So I think the vernacular you use is very important with the kids. <clears throat> we get them, you know, leaning in different directions. And we constantly talk about feeling how you feel. Tell me what you feel in kind of the the early stages. Right now, for example, we're kind of in our third phase where we're using some hurdles. So we're doing some hurdle mobility where they might step under, but then they leave their back foot under the hurdle and they have to lean until they can feel whether they can push off their inside or whether they're having to get too far on their outside mm-hmm. edge of their upfield leg. And then, you know, they have come to understand because we've told them. If you are leaning and you can't put power through the inside edge of that back foot, then your base is probably too wide. So we have to adjust it and then get in that position and kind of rock back and forth. And I know it seems like it's mundane, but we really spend a lot of time teaching them those edges and teaching them the cheat code, which we call the cheat code, meaning if you're going to do a wide, like a a 90 degree wide base crossover, you need to do everything you can to have that upfield foot kind of in a little bit of a cheat code back so that you can cross over at a true 90 as opposed to having to step around your leg and how that's going to feel. So we spend a lot of time, even when we're, you know, we're in level three of kind of our four or five levels of doing things with with this right now, we still, even as we progress the drills, build in those basic feel cues so that when they push, they can feel it. And then when they take it over into the reactivity stuff, they know, like you can almost, if you just keep teaching and teaching and teaching that and, and kind of talking to them and those little things, they will know you can go up and, and we do this all the time. We're lucky that we right now, 
we're in smaller groups, so I don't have more than 30 at a time, except on Saturdays. But you can ask them, why'd you miss that cut? Like, you know, he put his foot down and crossed you over and went back behind. What happened? And they say, well, I got way too far on my outside on my outside edge, and he stayed on his inside edge, mm. so he was able to cut back. Or the most common thing is, I was moving too fast. Yeah. Moving too fast. And that is probably the toughest concept of the whole thing is showing them, here's how fast you can run, but here is how fast you have to run to be able to stop and separate effectively or not be juked, you know? So I think just really getting your hands in the dirt with them and explaining what you mean by the word, the cues that you use and not using too many cues, but just really talking about holding their speed and what cut you want to be on your inside outside edge. And then also practicing, you know, when you get out of position, you know, that's what we, we practice cuts off the wrong part of your foot and how to get back because our thought is things aren't going to happen in a perfect world. And so they, then they take those into the variable drills and you can just ask them what happened and, and they'll, then they'll be able to tell you. So that, that's kind of, I don't know if that's the answer that you were looking for, but that's that's kind of how we do it. Sure. No, I, it makes sense to me. And I think to just awareness of basic things, it seems like, and I think just from a very general perspective, just people getting started, seeking general trends, it does seem like speed of change of direction. And then that would seem, uh, so I do have a question for you with that. Do you feel like there's sports that this is the most ideal for in the sense of when Tony was on, like football and offense being mm-hmm. more planned? It seems like some of these things that at least the more candrels may cater more towards like a offensive football type situation than perhaps maybe like basketball for example which i think is a little bit different do you feel like there are any sports or sports situations that there's much more of a benefit as you see uh, or the maximal benefit of this versus others that are a little bit maybe like smaller space uh, you know i'm sure there's adaptations for everything too you know the type of speed like a, a basketball versus a football offensive but curious between sports your thoughts on that so I would say that particularly the break plant separate is probably pretty exclusive to an offensive skill position player. And it's also by far the most difficult thing to master. We don't have anybody that right now at York, we had a couple and it was because they were freak athletes mm. that do that pretty regularly. But that wide base crossover, I think, you know, for basketball, you know, like to work on shuffling and I'm not, uh, I, I go to coach tap or, if I have mm-hmm. any basketball questions, I go right to lead yeah. town. But um, I think the advantage basketball has is you're already playing it at the best speed. We try to get our guys to play football mostly at a basketball speed mm. because it's so much more beneficial to be playing at that speed you would play on that on that court because you're never going to get – I mean, how often do you even hit 80% of your max? Yeah on a basketball court i mean maybe but it would be hard because you, you wouldn't be able to stop you'd run through the wall at the end you know so i think for basketball it's fabulous our baseball guys we had tony come down when i was at york last fall and he worked with our baseball and softball players and some of the wide base crossover and eight vector stuff he was teaching them fit right into like our baseball coach was like this is exactly the stuff we want to teach and we were just using different terminology so I think there's definitely a place for that in in most sports field and court, but you know basketball is actually the goal. 
Yeah. If we can get our guys to move like basketball players, they're going to be really good at football because that speed, you know, when I was down at Tony's, I was blessed enough to be able to hang out with Anquan Bolden a little bit and hear him say, that's what we're doing out there. I'm going to play basketball. You play football. I'm going to play basketball and I'm going to torch you, you know, because he can make his hands move fast and his feet play basketball. And you're going to be thinking, I need to move faster. And you will never be able to, to catch up to him when he hits that separation. So there's definitely that crossover. And to be honest with you, one of the best, one of the best athletes I've ever coached. He actually didn't even go to our school. He went to a, he, we were his home school, but he went to a charter school. He didn't have football. So he played for us. I tell people all the time, I'm almost embarrassed to say he didn't ever lift weights with us. He wasn't strong. He played year-round basketball, except for when it was time to play football. And he still was probably playing basketball. And my biggest concern with him was just don't mess him up. Yeah. Because his he'd come in and they'd come over and say, Coach, he's not squatting enough or he's not doing this, he's not doing that. And honestly, I would go over and pretend like I was fussing at him and stuff, and I'd say, Hey, just keep it light, you know, and do what you're comfortable with. Because he was the best football player. One of the best I've ever coached. My concern was don't mess him up. And his feet were miraculous. Like he could stop and cut. I mean, I think the dude returned like 13 kicks and punts for touchdowns his senior year and had like six or seven called back. A lot of that was kind of his fault because he could stop and change direction so fast that people just get blocked in the back. And I look at him kind of as that model because he was a phenomenal athlete that was great at basketball little undersized, but great at basketball. I want all our guys to move as a, just a percentage of what he can move. So, you know, I think that's a fabulous crossover. And I think a lot of the basic stuff can cross over into the diamond sports and, you know, tennis, probably I would imagine, I don't coach any tennis players, but I imagine that wide base crossover is probably something very similar to what tennis players do. So I think there's definitely value for all athletes. Yeah, that's where I, I kind of would love to see this master list of the qualities like that Tony talks about and then the sport it goes with the most and where mm-hmm. it does center a lot of it on basketball. And I think about, you know, Lee Taft as well coaches basketball. He also has said a lot about soccer. And I think about like those are the two sports I really grew up playing was soccer initially yeah. and then basketball. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason that at least for me that again, it's like if I'm going to run things through myself as an N of one is the litmus test. That's not necessarily, it's not the best idea because not all athletes have the background, you know, that I did. I always felt like I was pretty good at any like agility. As long as I could perceive it, my body Mm. never, I always felt like my body was very good at solving that problem. But I also now, as you say it, I think about basketball. It's like if it, what the, what a perfect breeding ground for that type of agility. You're never really moving at your full. I mean, most people probably can barely even get up to their full speed if that's spreading across the whole court, you know, from one end to the other. And so, you know, like you're talking half court, like you're pretty much at any given time moving at, I don't know, 20 to maybe 75% of your top speed or something, something in that range. And you're constantly changing directions, constantly. Yep. And so that's why changing, changing the, the size of the field and the number of athletes on the field is so important or on the court and playing these full. You know, part of our our reactive agility stuff is in all the drills. Sometimes it's playing three on three. We go half court, quarter court, however we want. You know, if we want 
faster speeds and less cuts will make the, the field bigger. If we want more cut and a little bit slower speeds, you constrain the size of the field. But basketball, it's such a bad rap in kind of PE and football. I actually had a previous football coach that I worked for a long time ago, so mad at me that he almost wanted to fist fight. But that's how mad he was at me because our freshman weightlifting class trained four days a week. And then we played basketball or other similar games on Friday. So it's freshman PE weightlifting. And our deal with them was, hey, we're going to train for four days. And, uh, and on Friday, we're either going to play some kind of tag game or something. Like he came and said, you keep playing basketball on Friday, and we're going to get our tail whipped every week. And I was like, coach, the exact opposite. We mm-hmm. should actually yes. probably play basketball on Tuesday and Friday. <laughs> yeah. Because watch them compete. Watch them move. That's why I love the reactive agility games. And I love, you know, three-on-three basketball. I mean, because there is no dog in it in those. They're, they're going to get after it. They're going to change direction hard. And they're going to take all of these things that we're teaching them. And they're going to do it at the, at the appropriate speeds. Because, again, they will self-organize based on the knowledge that, you you know, the great athletes, like you said, that guy I was talking about earlier. He self-organized from day one. Mm-hmm. He didn't have to do anything, and he was the, you know, it was crazy. I, Joel, I wouldn't even post his 40 time on the internet because people would be like, you're lying. So I didn't <laughs> post. He didn't need the lessons in that basic chords of the piano or the, you know, whatever yeah. they call it. He just needed to go. But I think the different level of athlete, you kind of set them up with these basic things, and then you unleash them in these small-sided games yeah. that you eventually get to, or you just let them play three and three basketball you know they can get lost in five on five but if you play three and three they're not lost they're they're getting it yeah so i'm a huge believer in i have no problem i don't want to roll the balls out and just say hey do whatever but hey three on three basketball tournament every friday let's go that's awesome i heard you i, I was you or someone talking about lowering the rims i wish i had a gym mm-hmm. where we could lower the rims so that we could have flame dunk contest we play that three on three basketball and we'd, we'd warm up, and then we'd start with a slam dunk contest, and then they play three-on-three basketball. Imagine the stimulus. You oh, know how yeah. much better they just got it at whatever sport they want to play because those things happen? It's crazy. Yeah, I, I love the idea of, it's like, okay, name the stimulus you want, and mm-hmm. now let's make a game that revolves around that stimulus. And then um, you put the human my- factor, the competition in, and... To me, yeah, like, let's play three-on-three, three, and let's lower the rims and have a dunk contest. Like, that, it's like... You want to talk about change of direction, plyometrics, explosiveness, like you're getting so much out of that. But it's like, okay, well then, okay, now go do your hurdle hops, right? Like it just doesn't seem, it's not even the same anymore. It's just not, it's totally different. Yeah, that's where I just, I just love that idea of matching stimulus, at least on the base level with a game. And then once you have the game, you know, even with basketball too, I was just thinking Zach Evanesh when he was on recently, I was talking about, I think it was football players or something. Hey, you guys want to do agility? Hey, go play basketball. It's just intuitively, he just realized that, that 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 general speed and all the changes of direction at that lower speed, that is agility. And it'd be really cool if there was like, yeah, this flow chart of like, all right, here is this base, like like cuts at this speed. This is this yeah. game for the most part. Cuts at this speed. This is this game and space or whatever. Here's some other spaces and ways you could set up that ability. And then beyond that, here's all the components that you could work on. The athletes who aren't as good as they need to be Here's the things you could warm up with for it and observe in the game itself. I would love to see that. That would help my brain. That's how my brain works. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm such a macro, because I'm macro to micro. I've mentioned this on this podcast way too much, but that's how my brain thinks is I want to see the game first. 
I'll watch the game and I my my ADD brain has a lot of things to watch and then and then I'll go into the the little pieces of it and then I I understand better that way that's again my mind so think about the, just think about that 135 cut what sports what athletes use that I we have a really good baseball player that plays football and and he was having a little bit of trouble with it because he was doing it as a like a linebacker drop and all I had to say was hey your 135 cut should be like you're in the outfield and the ball just got hit over mm. one of your shoulders. You're going to take that big wide base crossover and go. You're not going to turn and like drop like a yeah. linebacker. You know, it's like like you do need to to work on that lateral run too. But in in that particular instance, that 135 cut. We think about it in basketball. You're moving in that direction. All of a sudden, there's a turnover, and you have to yeah all the get time. 135 football. 135. You know, I tell the guys, it's like you're running across the field and all of a sudden the ball cuts back this way. You don't have time to pop, 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 pop. You got to figure out how to how to get in that cheat code in one step and 135 crossover. So I think, you know, those things, you can really look at the games and just see how all of these things just mesh in together. And yeah. it's crazy to me that there's people who are like, I'm going to spend four of my five days the whole time lifting weights. And then one day we're going out there and run around. <laughs> yeah. Like you'd be better off doing the opposite, you know, and I'm not saying lift weights one day a week, but I'm just saying if you just want an athletic ability, you know, maybe think about flipping that. So, but yeah. anyway. Yeah. It makes it, yeah. Well, we'll, the last bit, we'll get into a little bit of the one by 20 here. I did want to say too, and what your thoughts on this is I feel like I, I think a lot about movement wells. I, I always kind of think about, you know, athletes as, I like to think of us all as having unlimited potential and the ideally the ability to self-organize eventually any, you know, like basketball mm -hmm. movement, right? Like kid grows up playing basketball. Ideally, they can self-organize all these cut angles because it's in the game itself. But I also think about, well, athletes who maybe specialize a little early, maybe they didn't get a lot of that play and maybe they fall in a movement well. Like if I only grew up like, I don't know, let's just say playing tennis, <laughs> maybe yeah. my movement well is more evolving around more nine, more maybe T. Yeah, I can think of the T. I'm either kind of maybe doing a shuffle type movement and maybe I've gotten very good at it or I'm maybe running more directly. I'm moving from a shuffle back T to a ver more of a vertical direction. Of course, that angle is depending on if you had a, a close ball to the net you had to run to. But if you ask that tennis athlete to do like a 135 cut backwards, they probably don't do that as often. You know, maybe occasionally they're playing at the net and do it, but maybe their movement well or signature is more like, I'm just trying to draw a, like a basic picture because I feel like sometimes I'd be curious your take on this is maybe if athletes who might need this, some of the extra work more, maybe they have more of a well, like baseball. I only grew up playing baseball. You know, I maybe it's kind of the same thing for them. Maybe it's more lateral. Mm -hmm. and, I don't I, you know, turn, hit, run the base. I don't know. I'm, I'm just curious what your thought is on athletes who sports that or sporting backgrounds that almost might need like more of the multilateral stuff more because they haven't learned it in their sport as much. I could tell you that we do a, a roll 90 test, which we basically are testing our early acceleration by a, a five yard lead in 10 yard fly. Hmm. We're teaching them how to put force on the ground and using that. Well, then we turn that into a roll a five yard lead in into rolling into that 10 to find out what their deficit is. Baseball players and softball players dominate the hmm. roll left. I mean, it's like, hmm. whoa, roll right, a little bit different story. So I think you're on to something there for sure. And I'm a big believer in buckets. And so we probably haven't quite got where we need to be on that, but you definitely could bucket different 
athletes into some different needs of end of that eight vector cut for sure. Yeah. So I think that would be something that would be, it would be something really good to look at, especially for non-basketball football where there's those eight vector cuts are nonstop. So, and, and, you know, baseball is a lot of turn left and crossover, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, crossover, yeah. crossover and push. So they're pretty good at 90 and at the left to the left and the lateral 90s, but some of the other ones maybe not so good. But yeah, that's a really great idea. Yeah, that's really interesting with baseball too. Yeah, I, I'm I'm really interested too. Like you know, three, four, five years from now, like that. The more we learn about the specific sports, you know, needs you should be able to do these in this sport well, and mm-hmm. you know, and and the bigger that picture gets painted too. I think hopefully that'll. You kind of wonder too sometimes what will it take for kind of this early specialization machine? It's multifactorial. It's a lot of things. You know, to to start to. How do you educate the parents? If you at least could show that it said, hey, here's all the movements and you're going to miss this by only, you know, I, maybe they won't care. You know, <laughs> they're like, well, my kid's doing this sport, so who cares? You know, it's, it's, um, I don't know. It's just interesting to think about. I look at my daughter and she, she played a lot of different sports when she was younger and ended up exclusively in soccer. But I would, if I would almost, if I had a young child now, I would figure out a way to put them into soccer and basketball at age three or four. Hmm. And if that meant they could only play baseball in the spring and kind of do it like most people did when I was growing up, you know, you just went season to season. I think, wow. And you know what? I I did get tired of sitting around every single weekend at at these soccer tournaments, you know, but Hmm. it would be worth it because the, they're going to be, then they're going to be able to self-organize later on because at that age, like, wow, at that age, the ability to do all these different things, that would be really something. And as opposed to just volleyball over and over and over and over and over and over and over, or any sport, softball, you know, like the, the anything that they play and they play year round, I think you're probably, especially at the younger ages, you're really limiting yourself. Yeah. You know? I think about music too, like, like music helps us learn and like basketball, there's also a beat. You know, you're, there's, when you're dribbling, there's the ball and everything, you know, all the jukes and the thing you're, you're timing it to your own, your dribbling ability too. I think there's obviously like, you know, six-year-old for the most part is not going to be good enough <laughs> to get that yeah. together. My kids like just dribbling. I was like, you guys definitely can't dribble and pass <laughs> yet. But yeah. I, I am, uh, you know, the more you, you talk about it too, I'm just like, man, like that. I, and I'm thinking about my own trajectory, just well-roundedness. It just, it does make so much sense. And yeah. it's just fun. Everyone loves my, every team I've ever played basketball. Has, even, um, yeah, I've, I've even came up, I played basketball once with swimmers, which was kind of an off season thing. It was like a game before the sprinter yeah. swimmers lifted. And, but I had like some European kids who hadn't really played, no idea how to shoot. Like, so I'm like, all right, you just pass. I think I even took dribbling out. I was like, just pass. And if you hit the backboard, it's a point or something. <laughs> and they had a blast. They loved it. Uh, and then and we, they were then we laughing. Went. And, you know, the, and I, I'm a big, and I'm not a neuro expert in any way, shape, or form, but I'm a big believer that when they're in that central nervous system place mindset where they're smiling and they're laughing and they're, they're moving, there's going to be an imprint there that's going to help them move forward. So I, that, I think that was a really good idea. Just you start to get too down on things and make things too serious. And I think that that skill transfer is probably going to be less. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, even like basic lifting, like, you know, 
or like you could say even Olympic lifts, which is great. But like, you know, you could also just do a leg press if you really had to, you know, just and you yeah. could, there's no, yeah. lo- no learning curve whatsoever. And that, yeah, that no learning curve was for that game was a lot of fun. Let's segue a little bit to lifting. Maybe I uh, probably got time for one more little segment here with the okay. lifting. So one by choice. So really shifting gears, really polarizing the show. You got all the nuances of game speed and agility. And we'll talk about, oh, I did want to say one other thing with the game speed. Uh, you mentioned uh, edges of the feet and, and the, the different. Could you maybe just touch on that? I, I didn't. I do want to ask you that before we close it out. So talking about when more inside edges, outside edges of the feet, how that relates yeah. to different cuts. Um, just some general principles with how you're you're uh, instructing and uh, generating awareness too for athletes. I'm sure so many athletes are completely unaware what part of their foot right. they're cutting. Well, off things. We're, we're really trying to eliminate that pivot. You know, yeah. a lot of them get on that big toe and they pivot and kind of push through the toe. Say when you're doing a wide base crossover, if you can push through, if you've got that, cheat code where your foot's back a little bit and you can lean and you can really push through that inside edge of your of your back foot you can really cover some ground you kind of shift to where it's it's going from inside to outside whereas if you're on the outside edge of that back foot you're kind of leaning the wrong way so if you push on that outside edge you are going to take a much shorter step and you might pivot so all we're trying to teach them is Hey, when we're when we're needing to do something on our outside leg, because so you got chewed and the guy you went one way and the guy went the other, and all of a sudden you're leaning the opposite way, you've got to push on that outside edge to get back. So basically, we're just teaching them based on what cut we want them to have and what position that they're in, what side of their foot it's going to gain them the most separation. And you know, sometimes it's not biomechanically sound. But here's the thing. Sports is not biomechanically sound. Your feet are going to be in variable mm-hmm. position. You're going to be all over the place. Not everything is a closed drill where we want things done perfectly. So we try to teach them to go off inside edge of their foot, go off the outside edge of their foot, and not to pivot and what angle you want your foot to be into the ground as opposed to, you know, you get up on that, the, on that big toe and it's going to pivot and that's going to slow you down. That is basically when you pivot, it's kind of like what Tony calls fast feet replace. When your feet are moving, but your center of mass is not moving, that's kind of what we're calling fast feet replace because now you kind of got to like tap to get into that. I'm making hand visuals like, <laughs> everyone, can, like everyone can see me. But, but so, yeah, it's really just basically teaching them how to really push, really push into the ground. To get that extra six inches of separation, what happens in that wide base crossover? Even with, even when they're pushing on the right part of their foot, if they push from the toe or they don't push hard enough, their step's going to be short. Well, if your step's short, you're not going to separate from your opponent, or you're not going to gain ground on your opponent. So that's the biggest part of it. I do believe is you can teach all of this movement. But their separation isn't going to be better unless they're able to take their strength that they have and apply force into the ground in the direction you want them to go. So that's our thing with inside-outside edges. And Tony would probably do a much better job of explaining that. But that was something that I got from him that I never really thought too much about. We're going, hey, crossover step, do this, do that, do this. Here's Here's the biomechanically most efficient way to do this thing. And then you watch them move in those variable drills and you're like, 
they're like, yeah, it's not helping them at all because they didn't hit the cheat code. So if, if, if they're in the wrong position, what do they then have to do? Well, they can't push off their inside edge anymore because they're going to run into the inside of their leg or they're going to have to take a big step around. So now push on the outside edge of your upfield foot a little bit, you know, so that's right, wrong, or indifferent. That's how we teach it. Cool. All right. So let's get to the, yeah, the lifting, the little bit of lifting we have before we uh, can close out. So Mark, you've written a lot about, or I know you've written about one by 20 system. I mean, I've had a few podcasts. It seems like so long ago, I haven't had a one by 20 podcast in a long time, but back when I had those, I, I, they generated a lot of intrigue. I had people reaching out to me asking questions. I mean, I asked a lot of questions. I've, I've ran iterations of the system myself. Yeah. Curious your own experience with that type of system and how you've put it to use and progressed it in your coaching. So it's so funny because the person that I first heard talk about one by 20 was Tony Stewart from Iowa high school coach. And he called me this morning. <laughs> we actually were on the phone this morning about talking VBT, talking free lap, but, but like it wasn't anything to do with one by 20, but he was the one I, I was at the national high school strength coach association conference when it was in Indiana a few years ago. And I saw him, I didn't know who he was, and I saw him talking about one by 20. And in my mind, all I thought was, I see these kids doing curls for 20 reps. I'm like, what are they doing? You're like, it sounds ridiculous. So I wasn't, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say I wasn't going to sit in there. I was going to go out in the hallway and talk to somebody about something I was interested in. Well, by the time I got to realize he had started his talk, it was too late for me to get up and leave without looking like like I'm walking out on this thing. So I sat there and listened. And all of a sudden, the way he explained it, really was kind of like, this is actually pretty good. You know, one by 20 is the name. It's not the program. You know, it's just like five, three, one, you know, Jim Wendler, five, three, one. Well, that's a very, that's a a big part of it, but it's so deep that, you know, one by 20 is the same thing. So it's talking about a range of reps and things like this made a lot of sense. So then I just kind of put this in the back of my mind and we go back and football season ends. And at York, we had uh, the football guys year round. So, Season ends earlier than it normally had with a couple weeks before Thanksgiving. And I thought, you know, let's have some fun with this. These guys, you know, they're taking in the most calories they're going to take in during this holiday season. Let's hit them with some volume. Let's see how this works. So I basically said, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do, and this isn't the way I do it anymore exactly, but I said, hey, we're going to do, I can't remember, 15 exercises. And I said, pick a weight that you can do you know, 20, 25 times and, and you're going to do it. And and then we're going to you know put that in. I think we're using team builder then or put it in team builder. And then you're going to go back and look next, the next time we do it. Well, the kids had a blast, had an absolute blast. We kind of used it as a, I use it kind of like the tier system where I had one A, one B, one C. So we were kind of rotating through, but we did it by that. They added five, they added five, they added five. Well, then I'm looking around the room. These guys are jacked. Like, you know, like, you know, they're, they're putting weight back on, you know, they probably lost, but, but, and they're having fun and they're having a blast because it's different than what we, so I thought, all right, that's going to be a pretty good, like GPP type thing for this time of year. Well, then the next semester starts and I have all these uh, freshman female athletes and I say, you know what, let's try it. Let's try this with them. And so we did it kind of similar to the same way I do it now, where we started them with less sets and less reps and we just had them use the same weight for a couple of weeks just adding on reps and then we'd add a set at the end and it got to the point where now 
she was a beast. So, but we had a freshman softball player, and I look over, and she was doing. Um, by that point, we were like to fourteen to sixteen as the rep range, and she's over there ripping off like fourteen reps on an incline dumbbell with like forty pounds. I'm not a freshman, you know, female, and I, you know, you get, but you look at this stuff, and you're like, these girls are lifting weights that if I if I had just told them, one thing I found out. I loved about the females is they would do anything you asked them to do for sure. It was awesome. But uh, our female athletes at MCT are the same, but they'd be glad to trap bar deadlift, you know, a hundred pounds for five reps for the rest of their life, you know, because all of a sudden you are giving them a pathway to where they, here's when you add five, here's when you add five, here's when you add five and a goal to beat. And then they start competing a little bit. And next thing you know, they're all doing 20 and 30 pounds more than they were. And, and they're, they're doing it in a way that they're mastering the repetition because it's just repetition after repetition, after repetition. And they're basically surfing that whole force velocity curve. It starts off light at the end. It's heavy. So at that point, I started to do it with all of our, you know, I built it into our block zero program for our middle school athletes. And the biggest battle there is just don't get, I know it's, it's boring for the coach. It's boring for the coach, but just watch the results, watch the results. And they were phenomenal, undoubtedly phenomenal. So, and I, I understand some people don't want to do that. And they think you get the same out of four sets of five and, things like that. But if you follow the program, the way that Dr. Yesis set it up, you hit every possible joint angle. You can slide exercises in and out. If you, if you see a weakness or something that a lot of the banded hip flexor exercises that we slid in there just because, you know, athletes are having issues, it gives you the opportunity to, in 30 minutes to hit 18 different things at plenty of volume. And across the force velocity curve completely, and a very easy way to progress. Hey, if we're in our 18 to 23s, guess what? If you hit 18, stay at the same weight. If you hit 19, stay at the same weight. Hey, if you hit 22 or 23, time to go up, you know, or if you hit 22 weeks in a row, let's go ahead and go up. And if you drop to 16, we'll just keep working until the other thing that I loved about it was, and I use it when I do use it with older athletes, is when you have those drop in groups that you might see this athlete for a week and then all of a sudden they have volleyball tournament and a softball thing and then they come back three weeks later well where do you go you know well it's easy start where you were last week and we'll adjust from there you yeah. know and then you can work them through and the, the biggest problem i have with one by 20 is you can run those adaptations for so long in each of those rep ranges that it's almost unrealistic to actually use them long enough you know i so even i get a little bit bored going from our the rep ranges of 18 to my rep ranges are 18 to 23 12 to 16 and um 8 to 12 so you know you could probably run just the the any one of those and get great adaptations until you know i don't know how long so i'm a big believer in it i don't use it like i was telling you tony stewart from iowa he uses it They've won football state championships mm -hmm. in years where they've not had a single athlete do more than two sets of one exercise ever. That isn't how I use it, but you could use it that way. I use it as kind of a 
way to build up our athletes, you know, movement qualities and they get strong. And I, you know, mm -hmm. anyone that says you can't get strong by doing one by 20 doesn't really know about the program. You're just not paying, you know, like if I can get a strength adaptation from doing 20 reps, why would I add a whole bunch of weight and try to get that same adaptation with three reps? Because you're paying higher cost, you know? So if, 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 if you're selling a car and you advertise it for $5,000 and I walk up and say, I'll give you $10,000 for it, I'm going to get the car and you're going to get the money. But I just spent $5,000 that I didn't need to spend that I could have used later on to improve the car. And so you're going to, yes, you can absolutely get strength adaptations from those threes and fives with the younger athletes. But then what's going to happen later on? I want to try to extend that period of strength adaptation as long as I can with the most basic things possible and not overpay for those strength adaptations too early. I want to hold that money back pay what it costs. And if that cost is 60% or 70%, then pay it. Don't pay 90 because eventually you might need 90. But let's let's run the course of that and make sure our return on investment goes as far into the future as possible. Yeah. It makes sense too. You mentioned the athletes who are like the drop-ins who don't show up that often. It seems like something like a one by 20 would have more lasting effects in the sense that it's more metabolic than it is neural. You know, it's much more yeah. in the you know tissue... Uh, you're getting blood pumping in the tissue. You're getting that little bit of, I guess you could say, metabolic breakdown or whatever exactly happens for <laughs> when you take a set deep. Uh, you're getting things that last from that muscle metabolism and tissue perspective more than the sense of, hey, I'm expressing what I had neurally by you know doing a few sets of three or something. You know, uh, yep. and it, I mean, I, I like the I like the easy strength type setup. If you can lift every day, if I do every day and do three by three or two by five, then that does add up to more tissue-based adaptations over time. But if I'm seeing a kid once every week or two, yeah, like the only thing that's going to stick is a set that you take a little bit deeper that works something that's more than just the neural adaptation. And the heart rate monitor, we put heart rate monitors on kids doing it. We were blessed to have plenty. So we you don't want to talk about kind of a zone two. Oh, yeah. You know, like zone two, like they're not in zone two for the 45 minutes or whatever that they want for the, for the adaptation, but they're getting a ton of cardiac, you know, output from those. And then, you know, if you really want to make it like a conditioning situation, you could cut the rest times down, you know, mm -hmm. and you could, you could keep them in, in that zone, you know, so there's just a lot, it's very versatile and it's been good to us. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely. It strikes me that the more we learn about iterations of game speed and movement, I think we, you know, it's not that it's bad to do some of the more complex lifting schemes out there, but it's more, it's like, well, where are you putting your attention? You know, it's like, and, and I think that there is, it could be not the greatest thing to be complex everywhere. You know, we're going to be complex with movement. We're going to be complex. At some point, I think you just need something that's really simple. And you know, for me, I, I've, I've definitely used one by 20 iterations. I still do. A lot of times my deload weeks are like, you know, one by 12, one by 14, something like that. And a lot of other times it's more like easy strength like something that's really simple and then do all the complex stuff with the speed and the change of direction and the play and that kind of that's more where i've i've almost kind of polarized like that where before i think 10 years ago it was all more complex you know the whole thing whereas it's kind of to, segmented itself I, now. i had to run one by 20 myself so i was diagnosed with a torn rotator cuff in july but i couldn't uh 
have surgery till after the fall sports seasons were over. So I had it in December. And the reason I had went to get it checked out was because it had been hurting for years. And it finally, and and he basically was like, Hey, listen, let's, let's lay off the barbell stuff and lay off the, you know, and just, he said, lift, you know, and I love when people say this, but lift lighter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, all right, I'll lift lighter. I'll just do 18 to 23 reps and I'll go in there and I'll do. And I mean, it was, I loved it. If, if I really, again, just personally, it kind of, I was anxious to get back to being able to do some of the things I was able to before. And I'm just getting there now. But, you know, I ran that one by 20 from July through December and it was fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, I've seen it as well. Like people who had a hard time moving the needle on either muscle size, body weight and muscle, like, uh, or just even, yeah, their, whatever their lift was. In doing like a six-week block of that, I've seen a lot of people, especially more of the people who are a little more slow twitch, you call them hard gainers or whatever, like they just, their muscles just like needed to go deeper in that set. And so, it's interesting to see what happens. Like the variability too, I, I just think that's something that we don't think about is the fact that there is variability woven into a 30-second burst of pretty much anything. And then you get yep. to that like the metabolic effect that recovers like the high speed. Like if you do a bunch of fast stuff in sport, you know, it's like, all right, well, I mean, it's you know good to do explosive things in the weight room for sure, 100%. But at the same time, it's like if I can only do one thing and you're already doing all this explosive stuff, maybe I'll select the thing that fills the bucket that you aren't getting as much So right now, you know, and then we can add it in later, you know, more explosive type work. But I also think if it was just bare bones, bare necessity, like you, you hear about even like hit or high intensity training. I, I've been thinking about getting a podcast dedicated to that as well, where it's like you're being explosive, totally polarized, be explosive be boring <laughs> and then you know fill in the gaps later you know you can fill the gaps later but it's an interesting place to start for sure for sure all right cool well hey mark i know we've uh, we've covered a lot we didn't cover nearly all the questions but that's no, okay I, I actually was hoping kind of secretly hoping we didn't so we could spend get in more depth on some of these other topics so uh man it was great having you on though yeah, i really appreciate you so hearing you yeah talk about your training program some of the nuances of it uh especially to me like the game speed basketball you know i'm always you know, I, I always appreciate basketball even more than I already do as well. So thank you for all the things. I use, that- your, I use your example all the time of how you said you would always hit your high jump PR like the week after you come <laughs> off of basketball. Oh, season. Yeah. Uh, I use it the other day with, uh, we have, so we have men's volleyball and MCA and uh, their vertical jumps had been a little bit down week to week. And then they didn't, they didn't have anything really going on for like four or five days and, all the, the men's volleyball players all like PR'd in the, in the vertical jump. And I was like, Oh, it's awesome. That doesn't surprise me. I said, you know, because you know, you're getting all those, it's just like a basketball jump and jump and jump and jump and jump. And then you get four or five days of recovery and boom, your body's like, here we go. So yeah, very cool. I love it. Cool, man. Well, hey, thanks again, Mark. I, I really appreciate having you on the show here. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another podcast. We'll see you next week.